We are up to mitzvah number 69, and today we're going to do mitzvah 69, 71, and 231, and these are three related mitzvahs that all relate to the prohibition against cursing our fellow man. Mitzvah 231 is to not curse any Jew. Mitzvah number 69 is to not curse a judge. And mitzvah number 71 refers to the prohibition against cursing a nasi, which means a president or a leader. And in this context, it means either a king or the head of the Sanhedrin. Now, the verse tells us in the book of Leviticus chapter 19, Verse 14, lo sekalel cheresh. You should not curse a deaf person. You can't curse someone. And not only can't you curse someone who hears what you are saying and is, of course, ashamed, is pained by it, even someone who is deaf doesn't hear it, that is prohibited. And certainly, if you cannot curse a deaf person who doesn't hear it, and doesn't suffer the shame of your malediction, you certainly may not curse someone who is hearing and not only is being cursed, but has the shame of having to hear that. Now, the Sefer Chenach in Mitzvah number 231 is trying to figure out exactly why. What is this danger of cursing? Don't they say that, you know, physical pain, sticks and stones will hurt me, will break my bones, but you can call whatever you want, and I am totally unaffected. Apparently, there's some power in words. When someone curses someone else, it has real consequences, and the question is, why? So the Sefer Chinuch begins and says, we don't know exactly why some negative influence affects the person who was cursed, but we do know, in general, that no one likes to be the recipient of a malediction. And it's not a Jewish thing. Even Jews and non-Jews, no one in the world, there's no human in the world who likes this, who likes being cursed. And people are sure that it actually makes a difference. That there's some influence, there's some effect that cleaves onto the recipient of the curse and affects them in a negative way. And therefore, just like we are commanded to not harm someone physically. And by the way, we're also commanded to not harm someone spiritually. We're commanded to not harm someone verbally, and we may not curse them. So that's the general reason. People don't like it. People are sure that there's some power to it. People are sure that words have some sort of magical potency to affect both positively and negatively, and therefore don't harm your fellow man. That's the general introduction that he gives And then he gets more specific. He says that the Talmud says that there's power in human words. Human words have power. Then he says a very interesting, like kind of Kabbalistic idea. The part of man where man can converse verbally is associated with man's most elevated stature. And he quotes the famous Targum in chapter 2 of Genesis where it talks about the creation of Adam. God infused in his nostrils the soul of life and the Targum, the translation of the Torah says, 
Man became a speaking being. Man is distinct. Man is elevated. Man is different than every other species. And what highlights, what embodies this difference? Man can speak and no one else can. And in this special superpower of humanity is the fact that we could have influence not just on ourselves, but on people around us. And he adds another point. The holier someone is, the more associated they are with that higher elevated being of themselves, and the closer they are to being a tzaddik, to being a righteous person, to being a pious person, that amplifies the potency of their words, and that speeds up, that accelerates the immediacy of the response of the words. It's a very powerful insight here. Man, of course, is this this fusion of body and soul, of spiritual and physical. And the essence of man is where those two points touch, where those two opposites bind, where they fuse together. At the touch point, at the nexus, at the marriage, at the unity of body and soul, of physical and spiritual, on those crossroads is man's essence. And, of course, we have some parts of ourselves that skew to be more spiritual, just like, you know, smell. Smell is considered to be a very spiritual sense. Uh, intellect, ideas are more associated with the intangible. They're, they're like invisible. You can't really see them. You can't pinpoint them. You can't measure them. They're not necessarily things that we interface with on a physical level. They're more spiritual and intellectual. And then you have speech where speech is almost like a confluence, like a hybrid of the physical and spiritual. You use your mouth and you are engaging physically, but what you're producing is also something which is a little bit intangible. It's invisible. It's hard to quantify. You can't weigh a word. It's not really something that has physical attributes. And therefore, words are much more spiritually elevated than actions and consequently they carry more weight. But I think there's another general principle over here. Who controls the world? Well, as believers, we're trained to say it's the Almighty who controls the world. That's what we're taught. The Almighty is in charge of everything. However, now that we're adults, and we're a little bit more sophisticated, we could have a more nuanced answer to that question. And we say that the Almighty, of course, is the power behind everything, but he outsources some power to us, to humans. He delegates some authority to us. He wants to partner with humanity in the world. Who runs the world? Of course, it's God. But to a certain extent, the Almighty is offloading some of that responsibility to us. And that's why when we act positively, you know, the world is positively influenced. When we act negatively, we also have a say. We have a say both ways. The Almighty gives the reins, so to speak, of running the world partially to us. Of course, there's some things that we cannot change, or at least not easily. But 
much of what happens in this world is the handiwork of man. We have a seat at the table. We have prayer, right? Prayer is the ultimate manifestation of this idea. We can determine what happens. We get a seat at the table. We can lobby God. Someone's sick. Are they going to die? Depends. If people pray for them, maybe they'll survive. If people don't pray, pray for them, maybe it's like, likelier that they'll die. Someone's sick. If we take them to the hospital and we try to fix them up, maybe they'll live. If not, then they'll die. But doesn't God decide? Of course God des- decides. But part of what happens, and it's not exactly clear how the exact breakdown of authority or decision-making power is distributed, but a certain part of it is determined by God and a certain part of it is determined by us. So what's going to be with this guy? I don't know which guy. Bob. What's going to be with Bob? So, of course, the Almighty has a plan. And maybe people have a plan as well. And you'd imagine that Bob, too, has a say in the matter. But here we're told, if I, as an outsider, I say, I don't like Bob, I want Bob to die. It's not just something that's not a decision maker just streaming from the cheap seats from the bleachers. This is a decision maker and what happens to the world and what happens to Bob as well. Who decides Bob's fate? It's God, of course, it's Bob and it's me. And if I convey my displeasure with Bob and I want Bob to die, one of the people at the table or one of the entities at the table is voting that Bob should die. And that matters. And of course, the holier someone is, the more of a say that they have. And this is similar, I think, to the concept of the evil eye. Again, it's a more of a mystical concept. But when I look negatively at someone, I try to infuse them with some negative energy, it could affect them negatively. That's what we're told. How? What, what say do I have? This is the same idea. The Almighty gives us some of the decision-making power. He outsources some decisions to us. And therefore, if I have a negative eye on someone else, it could be harmful for that person because you see a human seeking evil outcomes for their fellow man. And when this is not just an evil eye, it's words, it's a curse, it could indeed negatively impact because words are really powerful and other people also have a say in determining what happens to you. There's this idea in social psychology called affirmations where when someone says something that actually has a determinative effect on what happens to them. And if they say, oh, I have no talent. Oh, I'm so, I'm so dumb. Oh, I have no, but I'll never succeed. That is actually causative to make him not succeed. Whereas if someone says, I got this, I'm going to win. I'm going to succeed. I'm going to overcome this challenge. If they just say those words, it's likely to contribute to that result to happen. And that's this idea that words have some spiritual power and energy to them and they are actually effective at effectuating positive results and, of course, negative results. And that's the idea. We don't curse someone because that will be equivalent to harming them. We can't harm them physically. We cannot harm them 
verbally. And the Sefer Chinuch adds another point, another reason why curses are banned. And that is that if I curse someone, even if they're not privy to that, it's quite likely that that malediction will reach the ears of the recipient. We say today, the walls have ears. And by the way, in Talmudic times, they used to say, the birds of the heaven will take this message and convey it to the next guy. Secrets, especially ones that convey negative emotions towards another person, are very, very hard to keep bottled up. Information wants to be free. And therefore, what's going to be? I curse someone, eventually that message will be relayed to them, and they'll hate me, and I'll hate them. And what will that do? It will increase acrimony and hatred, and it will do the opposite of promoting peace, and therefore, we don't speak negatively. We don't curse other people. Now, the Rambam, in the Book of Mitzvahs, a negative mitzvah number 317, he has a very deep, I'm going to say it twice, deep explanation of what is actually happening over here. And he explains almost like a like a psychological layout of how people work. I think it's, it's very fascinating. I had to read it twice because I didn't understand it the first time. I'm like, what? This is amazing. But I want to share with you what he says. Now, again, if you remember the verse, the verse says, don't curse a deaf person. And the Talmud says, well, it's not just a deaf person. It means even a deaf person. Certainly someone who's hearing. So the Rambam says, I want to explain to you why it says, don't curse a deaf person. And he says, listen to me and understand what I'm saying, what this means, what this is trying to convey. And he explains, when someone sets their mind to get revenge, someone did something bad to you. Someone caused you pain. Now you want to get back. You want to get revenge. How does that work? How does that work psychologically? He says that someone in their minds affixes a picture of what it looks like when they get revenge. And until that vision, until that image has been actualized, they're not going to stop until they get there. It's almost like they create a goal for themselves and that goal creates a picture in their mind and until that picture of the mind has been implemented, has been actualized, that picture is going to remain in their mind. And only when they have that payback does that picture go away, does that feeling subside. And he says there's different levels of of revenge. Sometimes you want to just curse the guy out and that'll make you feel good and that will fulfill your fantasy, so to speak. Sometimes that's not enough. The image of revenge in your mind is much more intense. You want to cause them a financial loss. And only then will you get your fulfillment. And sometimes you want to cause them a physical bodily loss. You just see, you want to just rip their, rip their skin off. You want to hurt them. You want to just dismember them. Break their bones. And that's the picture you have. Until you have that actualized, you're going to have that fantasy in your head. And sometimes, if you feel like you've been so slighted, until they're actually dead, you don't have a uh, 
uh, equanimity from this fantasy. And sometimes you don't necessarily want revenge. All you want is to let out your rage. And they don't even have to be present. You have pent up anger and they didn't do something bad to you necessarily. It wasn't so much so bad. You don't want them to suffer necessarily. But what you want is to be able to let out your, your anger. And you want to scream. And you want to curse. It doesn't matter if anyone hears you. You just want to vent. You want to really lace into the guy. Doesn't, the person has to be present. But you want to scream and shout and curse the guy out. That's how angry people work. That's how vengeful people work, says the Rambam. And once they develop that mental model, once they develop that mental image, that fantasy, that picture of what it looks like when they resolve this dispute, once they have that image, it's really hard to shake it. It's really hard to free themselves of that until they actually get it. And therefore, perhaps you may have thought that the reason why it's prohibited to curse someone, a fellow man, a fellow Jew, it's because you don't want to cause pain to another Jew. You don't want to cause pain to your fellow man. So maybe you would have said, hey, if the person's deaf and there's no way for them to know that you are cursing them, well, maybe it will be okay to vent a little bit to scream a little bit, to be angry a little bit, to lambast the invisible person a little bit. After all, you know, people get worked up. And it's a healthy thing to get worked up and then let loose and scream and shout. And you know what? That's quite therapeutic. And you feel great afterwards. Okay, you know, you got your fill. Maybe that will be okay because the person's deaf. He's not going to suffer at all. It's okay, perhaps you may think, for a person to have this diatribe, to go on this uh, epithet, and to really curse someone out. Maybe the person's not suffering. There's no victim. It's a victimless crime. Therefore, the Torah says, don't curse a deaf person. The Torah wants us to avoid anger and images of revenge. And therefore, as a way to dissuade us from becoming vengeful, angry, bitter people, hateful people, the Torah says, don't even curse the deaf. Even if the person who is the object of your wrath suffers nothing because they're deaf, nevertheless, the Torah wants us to be calm people, to be forgiving people, to be easygoing people, to easily just forget and let, you know, let things slide off of us, to not harbor a grudge and harbor a desire, a lust for revenge. And therefore, even if the person is deaf, even if the person is not going to suffer at all, don't get angry, don't seek revenge, and don't curse them out, even if they're deaf, even, even if they're deaf and even if they're not going to suffer. To me, this was such a, such a powerful piece. Because it's explaining, you know, how people's emotions work and how anger works. And there's a certain mental image of revenge that's created that creates a certain desire to behave like that. And therefore, we're told to nip it in the bud, 
to not even build up this picture of revenge that we're going to get against the person and just be more easygoing, pleasant, forgiving people. So that's this mitzvah, to not curse any one of our fellow men. And of course, there's many laws to it. So let's go through some of these laws. So this is one of the only mitzvahs that don't have an actual action that carry with it the penalty, the punishment of lashes. There's many mitzvahs in the Torah, violations that people do, that the Torah says in the event that someone does this kind of behavior and there's witnesses and there's a proper warning and all the protocol of the, the judicial process has been fulfilled, there's punishments of lashes. The Torah believes in corporal punishment. As an aside, I'm actually in favor of bringing back corporal punishment to modern uh, uh, judicial processes, modern uh, uh, criminal uh, rehabilitation. I think it will, will rehabilitate. Instead of putting someone in a cage for years, surrounded by criminals, you give them a good beating and send them back home. Patch them up, send them back home, and let's see what happens. Anyhow, that's just my little aside. You can ignore that if you don't like it. But anyhow, the Torah believes in corporal punishment. Someone does certain violations, they get lashed, and they go right home. There's no, there's no idea. There's very little incarceration in the Torah. In, in, in criminal law in the Torah, the only time that someone is incarcerated, it's only as a jail in a holding cell. Someone, let's say, beats up someone. We're not sure if that victim's gonna die. So we have to wait to see what happens. What's the fate of the person who was beaten up? And therefore, we don't know if this person's treated as a murderer or is just a common thug. So we put the, the, the perpetrator, we put them in a holding cell to find out what happens to the to the victim. But the Torah does believe in corporal punishment. But normally, you have to do an action. Speech alone is not enough to engender this kind of punishment. This is one of the few areas where even though it's just speech, you're cursing someone, provided that it's done within a certain context uh, with witnesses and uh, you're warned ahead of time and you use the proper... Terms, so you have to use, you have to use the actual name of God to curse someone, and it has to be one of the names of God in the Torah, or one of the nicknames of God in the Torah. It gives a few, few lists, you know, it gives a list over here of, of various different names, or even one of the names that the Gentiles use. That too would qualify. It is prohibited to curse yourself. It's prohibited to curse a dead person. However, in the event that you do curse a dead person, you are not liable. And interestingly, this is not a forgivable crime. Normally, if it's a crime against another person, then it's interpersonal. That person could say, you know what? I forgive you. You cursed me. I forgive you. But this is really a crime against God. And consequently, there is no way for a person to just ignore because it's not just a crime against them. It's a crime against God. So we have a general mitzvah, mitzvah number 231, to not curse uh, any person. Mitzvah number 69 is to not curse a judge. And that's based on a verse in Exodus chapter 22, verse 27. Elohim lo sechalel. You should not curse Elohim. Now the word Elohim, in some contexts in the Torah, it's a nickname of God. The word Elohim literally means powerful or powers. And many, many times in the Torah, the word Elohim is not a reference for the divine. It's, in fact, a reference for humans. 
So in this context, when it says Elohim, Lo Sikhalel, you should not curse Elohim. It's not referring to God, or at least not only referring to God, it's referring to a judge. And that's why we could say the word Elohim in this context, because normally we cannot say the name of God unnecessarily. So we would have to say Elohim, if we're referring to God, we would say Elohim, unless it's a, you know, a, a blessing or if the Torah, we can't just say God's name in vain. But here it's a reference to a judge, and therefore we could say Elohim, because it's not capitalized, so to speak. It's not a name of God. It's a name of a powerful one. And in this case, someone who has the power of the judiciary, and that's why they're called the powerful one. So, for example, in the end of Parshish Bratius, it says the B'nai Elohim, the sons of Elohim, they started misbehaving and marrying women, and that's the backdrop, that's the background, that's the backstory of the flood. People start misbehaving. B'nai Elohim. It means the sons of the powerful ones. That's what it means. God tells Moshe, I will make you an Elohim to Pharaoh. You will be a master of a Pharaoh. You'll have power over him. Very important thing to note that the word Elohim means powers or powerful one. And most often in, in the Torah, it's a reference for God, but not always. And here is an example of where it's used to describe a judge. You cannot curse Elohim. You cannot curse a judge. And by the way, many, many times in the Torah, the word Elohim is used to describe the judge. Ad Elohim Two people have a fight, two people have a dispute, they come to Elohim, they come to the judge. Asher Yarshiun Elohim Yishalm Shnaim. The one that the Elohim, the 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 justices, the judiciary finds guilty should pay. Etc. There's many other examples, but the word Elohim, just a good thing to note that in this context and other contexts as well, as well in the Torah, it's a reference to powerful one or powers. So why is it prohibited to curse a judge? And by the way, this means that if you curse a judge, you're violating two prohibitions, 231, like we said, for every Jew, and 69, a special extra prohibition to curse the judge. So Sefer Chirach tells us that the bedrock of a functioning society is a free and independent judiciary. We don't want the judiciary to not operate based upon law, based upon their convictions, but based upon the threats of the people. We don't want them to be influenced by their surroundings. And therefore, there is extra protections to ensure that they're not going to be negatively influenced and they're not going to be cursed. There's a violation. If someone does curse them, they're going to be lashed not once but twice, once for cursing any Jew and a second time for cursing a judge. And therefore, that's going to ensure that they're going to have more of a standing and people will have more reverence for them and they could do their job in a better way. And the Sefer Chinuch adds that inflammatory words sometimes actually lead to inflammatory behavior and violence. You have to be very careful what you say, because what you say is likely to bring about what you do. And he quotes an advisor to a king who said about the masses, quote, be very careful, be very fastidious about what they say that they shouldn't say it. 
Because if they say it, they will do it. We believe people with what they say because people's words are going to lead to people's actions. And we need justice. Justice upholds the land. And therefore, if the judiciary is going to be threatened, the stability of society is in peril. So that's Mr. Number 69, to not curse a judge. And then we miss Mr. Number 71, to not curse a Nasi. And in this context, it's a reference both to a king and to the head of the Sanhedrin. So the head of Sanhedrin is both a Jew and a judge and a head of Sanhedrin. So if someone were to curse the head of Sanhedrin, the Nasi, the president of the Sanhedrin, that would result in them being lashed not once, not twice, but three times for three separate violations, 231, 69, and 71. Now, the Sefer Chinuch tells us, you know, why is both a king and the head of the Sanhedrin called a Nasi? The answer is that both of them are, are presiding over something. One is presiding over the monarchy, presiding over the government. And one, the head of the Sanhedrin, is the president, so to speak, of Torah. He is the minister of Torah. And therefore, both of them, even though one's a political office and one is a judicial religious office, Nevertheless, both of them can both be described as the Nasi, as the leader. So why is there a separate mitzvah, says the Sefer Chinuch, for us to be told not to curse the Nasi, the president, and the king? So he explains, as he always does, and again, it's important for us to emphasize this again, the Sefer Chinuch is not telling us the reason. The reason why we do this mitzvah is because God says However, we are encouraged to try to understand it as best as we can. And therefore, there is an interest to get more of a connection and a feeling and an understanding of every mitzvah. And therefore, it's appropriate for us to try to investigate what's the meaning behind it, what potentially could be the meaning behind it. Let's try to make it more meaningful to us, not necessarily because there's this is the absolute reason, but this is a reason that makes, it, makes sense to us and makes the mitzvah kind of more relatable to us. So he says it like this. He says, leadership, having some form of government, is paramount. It's necessary. Why? Because every person has their own opinions. And everyone has their own way of thinking. And if you just allow everyone to have a say, all you have is, is gridlock. All you have is stagnation. So you have to have a way to winnow out the various different opinions and follow one opinion. That's the idea of leadership. Sometimes the guy gets it right or the leader gets it right. Or the girl, shall we say. The guy or the girl gets it right. The leader. Sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. But at least there's a unified approach. And not every person and every idea gets implemented because then you have nothing. If you just follow everyone's idea, then you have you have no way of doing it. If I am categorically opposed to red lights and I start behaving the way I behave, then all you have is chaos. So you have to have a system. Okay, it's not the perfect system. Try to improve it as best we can. Try to get as much input as we can. But ultimately, there's only one way that we're going to do things. That's why we have a leadership or, or, or I would say a pyramid of leadership that really limits what actually gets done because, you know what, if everyone's opinion is implemented, then we have nothing. 
By the way, there's a management principle called disagree and commit. That the best way to do things is to have a debate and everyone presents their argument and disagree, disagree, disagree. But ultimately, whenever a decision is made, everyone commits to that decision. Because you know what? Sometimes you got it right, sometimes you got it wrong. But that's a good system to ensure that there will be a unified approach towards whatever goal you have. And therefore, because we need a leader, it's appropriate that that leader should be accorded respect. We have a leader of a country, a political figure, a governmental figure, a king. We have a leader of the religion, essentially, the head of the Sanhedrin, who's in charge of the ultimate uh, judiciary, the ultimate rabbi, the king rabbi of them all. And therefore, you know what? Are they infallible? No, only God's infallible. That's it. We believe only God's infallible. And the Torah tells us more mistakes than Moshe made, the greatest man that ever was, to highlight this point that humans are indeed fallible. So we're not assigning some monarchy infallibility, rabbinic infallibility to the rabbi, to the Sanhedrin, to the head of Sanhedrin, and to the king. However, what we're saying is that this is a system that is necessary and therefore we have to do whatever we can to allow them to do their job. And to do their job, they have to have respect. They have to have buy-in. They have to have a certain standing in the community. And if someone curses them, that, of course, destabilizes the entire system and then anarchy could potentially result. And therefore, whatever the decision is, we follow it. That is the 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 winnowing of this pyramid and that's what we follow. And therefore, we may not curse the king. We may not curse the head of the Sanhedrin. And the Gemara gives a, a dramatic story about this. It tells us about Herod. Herod was a king, king of the Jews, but uh, there was certain doubts about his pedigree. He may, in fact, have not even been halakhically Jewish. And he was so obsessed with this. He was so obsessed with trying to legitimize his rulership that he, first of all, killed off all the members of the Hasmonean dynasty to get rid of any other potential candidates for the throne. He married the one survivor to, again, bolster his credentials. But then she committed suicide because she is obviously living with heroin was a nightmare. She goes to the top of the roof, the Gemara says, and she makes a declaration. Whoever says they're from the house of Hasmonean, they're liars, they're slaves. Because I'm the last surviving member of the Hasmoneans, and now I'm going to die. She jumps on the roof and kills herself. And then Herod, again, to try to preserve his legitimacy, he takes her body and preserves it. As if to say she's still alive, as if to kind of hide this information from, from the public. And he has her embalmed in, in honey. And the Gemara says, according to one opinion, he would actually engage in a necrophilia with her corpse. Kind of, it was a real, a real, a real madman, a real crazy person. But regardless, he is on this war path to legitimize himself and legitimize his monarchy. And then he says, hey, who are the people who say I'm not legitimate? It's the rabbis. So he turns his wrath on the rabbis and he assassinates 
almost all of them. And he keeps one rabbi alive, whose name was Bava ben Buta, because he needs his counsel. He was such a clever rabbi, he needs his counsel. So he keeps him alive, but he gouges out his eyes. Just a terrible guy, just one of the one of the worst villains of, of, of our history. And then Herod wants to wants to show the treachery of these rabbis. So he impersonates someone else and goes to this blind rabbi, Bava Bemut, and says, Hey, this Herod guy, what a terrible guy. Let's curse him together. Let's curse this Herod guy. And the rabbi refuses. He says, No, I'm not cursing a king. Even in my thoughts, I'm not going to curse a king. And you know what? If you if you, if he wasn't a king, he was just a rich person, I'm not going to curse a rich person either. And if he was only a leader, I wouldn't curse him because you cannot curse a leader, a Nazi, a king, amongst your people. And Herod is trying and trying and trying to have this rabbi say one bad word about him to legitimize his his horrific behavior. And he's unsuccessful. The rabbi refused to say one bad thing about Herod, despite the fact that Herod killed all his colleagues, gouged out his eyes. Nevertheless, he doesn't say one bad thing about him. And the Talmud tells us that this story is what inspired Herod to refurbish the temple. He feels terribly guilty about what he did. He's like, I, I killed off this class of, of the sages. And now I see they're just such upstanding people. What do I do? So Bava Ben Butas tells him, you destroyed the eyes of the world. Literally his own eyes, but also the Sanhedrin. The leaders, the sages are the eyes of the world. They're the portal, so to speak, through which the divine blessing is brought to the world. But you know what else is the eyes of the world? The temple. And the temple has fallen into disrepair. Refurbish the temple and that will be your repentance. And that's what led him to this incredible refurbishment of the temple. And he renovated it and made it the most gorgeous building in the world. And uh, the last hundred years of its existence, before it was destroyed, the temple was indeed absolutely stunning and glorious. And that's one story Talmud tells us about this prohibition not to curse the king. Even someone who is not necessarily a legitimate king, we respect the office even if we don't respect the office holder. But those are our mitzvahs. Mitzvah 231, mitzvah 69, mitzvah 71, a prohibition against cursing, both cursing a regular person, to curse a king, to curse a judge. And we saw a little bit of the insight as to how words indeed do have power. By the way, that's one of the themes of the Torah. Words have power. They may seem to be intangible and insignificant and insignificant in our eyes, but in truth, they have tremendous power and potency and can indeed affect changes. And that's why we must be very careful how to use our words, use them for good things, for good statements, and to not use them for harmful statements, and to not use them, God forbid, to curse anyone else, and certainly not to curse the leaders, and not to curse the judges.